Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. Look, as you guys know, I tend to give it to you straight. And while I know a lot of things, I also know there are times when I need to lean on others for help. When it comes to insurance, State Farm is the one I count on. I love that they make insurance easy. You can monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim with their app, which was just awarded Best Insurance Mobile App of 2019. And thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that truly meets your needs versus cookie cutter coverage. But what I appreciate most is that they don't mess around. They don't bother with gimmicks or games, just helpful guidance you can rely on. Go out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. Today's show is also brought to you by Buckley Dog Food. We all know that good food comes from good ingredients, and the same applies to pet food. And I always want to feed my dog the very best. Buckley Dog Food is all about quality ingredients. Buckley's recipes are preferred five to one because they don't have any rendered meat meals, byproducts, or fillers, just fresh meat and whole ingredients. Go to buckleypet.com slash Chang and use the code Chang, C-H-A-N-G, for 20% off your first order. Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thanks to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. We're going to have to get them on the podcast one day soon, I promise. I'm recording this intro from Los Angeles. We recorded the podcast with our guest in New York City at our restaurant, Momofuku Co. It's been a while since I've been back in the Ringer office. Isaac Lee producing. What's up, Isaac? Hey, hey. There's a a lot going on right now. I, I had a conversation with Bill Simmons, because we're about to have our 100 podcast episodes. Can you believe Ooh, we had 100 podcasts? Isaac? 100. Wow. I didn't even know that. Pretty crazy. Um, you think that I've cursed less in the beginning? <laughs> uh, I think you'll rely on cursing a little less. I think when you do it, you're doing it because you genuinely mean it instead of, uh, I think before you used to use it as some kind of verbal crutch. To get your point across. Wow. Shoot it to me straight, Isaac. Yeah, I mean, I'm your producer. This is what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> um, you know, he said like, hey, I think you're ready to expand and to enter new topics of conversation. And he had an idea that I sort of do a top three topics of whatever's happening in my life, whatever interests me, whether, you know, let's the bucket would be one culture, one's food, one sports. Mm. And we just rap about that, whether I'm with a guest, whether it's with Isaac or myself, just talking as I usually do, and then get into the podcast. So in some ways, it's like what Isaac and I were trying to do with my opinion as fact, but I think it got a little bit <laughs> hard because we were trying to like really, you know, explore an opinion in, in like five to 10 minutes. And I think it was really difficult. So I think yeah. we try to like dip our toes in topics. It's not going to be like hot takes. It's just going to be three topics. Right. And we're going to get into our podcast guest. And this week, without me going too long, is the great musician, recording artist, Huey Lewis from Huey Lewis in the News. I'll get to that in a second. If you don't know about Huey Lewis, one of my favorite artists growing up and just a, a tremendous amazing man. I love him. But back to the topics, three topics. This week, I wanted to do something about kitchen utensils because I cook a lot at home and more than I've ever cooked at home. And the one thing that I 
have brought over from a professional cooking perspective because most of my equipment is not. I just use whatever's at home. There's nothing really special about it. Even my knife, outside of a couple of paring knives, nothing really translates from my home kitchen to a professional kitchen. I mean, there are things like, you know, we use in Le Creuset in our restaurants. I have Le Creuset at home and, and stuff like that. Like those kinds of pots and pans, all clad. And I'm not trying to talk about kitchen shit, but what I wanted to say, because I was having a conversation with someone about cooking at home, the only thing I really require from a professional kitchen are professional spoons. I think the home spoon or the the spoons that are made for home kitchens are complete garbage. And when I mean professional spoons, to me, the spoon that I like the most because you can get it is the Grey Kuntz spoon. Grey Kuntz was one of the great chefs. He was from Switzerland, ran Les Panas, a fabulous restaurant in the 90s in New York City. It was at the St. Regis Hotel. It's a restaurant that you've heard me talk about with other guests quite a bit was a legendary restaurant that's created so many amazing chefs. And one of the things that he helped create with, I think, J.B. Prince, a famous kitchen retailer in New York City, was the spoon. And it has a really good well, the shape of the spoon itself, and it's heavy. It feels good. You don't want something that's light and crappy. You want those. Those can be good tasting spoons, but you want something that has a good feel because as you erase or baste, right, you, you want to be able to do that when you're cooking meats or fish and you want a deep enough well, or you're adding a sauce to a plate or anything, right? Like it's so versatile. And another thing that I like to use, I don't really cook with tongs. I never really have. I like to use a spoon in my right hand and using my fingers with my left to turn meat over or just to move things around in a pan. And I think it's a much more versatile tool than tongs. Uh, sometimes I'll use chopsticks, but the thing that I'll probably use the most to cook my foods is a coon spoon. I've given a lot of my old spoons away. They weren't all coon spoons because some of the older spoons, you I don't know where they were made, but occasionally if you work in a professional kitchen, you'll see someone with like an antique spoon that was made probably like 50, 60 years ago. And you're like, where did you get that? Because it's just like at a really deep well. It feels really good in your hand. And the best way I can describe this, because I've recently watched all the Harry Potter novels, I mean movies, because my wife likes Harry Potter. I grew up watching Star Wars. So I was like, shit, I got to learn how to communicate with her on this stuff was the wands on Harry Potter. And it's like, mm-hmm. you got to find the, the spoons that feel good to you. I recommend the Coon Spoon because it is something that you can buy and you can purchase. They have a really good slotted spoon as well. And I think they come up with smaller ones, but it doesn't have to be that. It just has to feel good, has to be durable. And that's something you should never lose. So I've had my Coon Spoon for I don't know how many years now. And I think the earlier versions of the Coon Spoons were much better than the ones that are produced today. I think they just feel better, in my opinion. Isaac. Yeah. Did whatever I say make any sense to you? Do you even give a shit about spoons now? Uh, when I cook at home, I don't really use a spoon. I don't really think about a spoon as a cooking utensil. I only think of it as a eating utensil. But I like the idea of you being the Mr. Ollivander of spoons. Of just Mr. Ollivander? He's the wand maker oh, oh, in oh, Harry yeah, Potter. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I like the idea of, of you just being like, you got to find a I spoon. I watched the that, movies. I didn't read the books. Uh, I mean, he, he appears in the movies. Mr. Ollivander. Mr. Mr. Ollivander of Spoons, David Chang. What's the wand shop called? I think it's just Ollivander's. Oh. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) What a wild tangent. What a wild tangent. I just think that people should invest in spoons. That's all I'm saying because whenever I go to kitchens, I can complain about a lot of things I see in home kitchens, but the one thing that I 
am always disappointed in is the lack of quality in spoons. Invest in a, a couple really good spoons. I so Topic number two is this week, we're just going to talk about some food discoveries. I'm in LA. I had to do an event in Palm Springs last night. And I had dinner at this restaurant in the area of Palm Springs area called El Capitan Agradece. I don't know if I, I made it sound like it is an Italian restaurant. I apologize. And it was like, um, they just did ceviches and amazing seafood. I just thought it was fun. They also served some version of Chinese food a little bit, it seemed. But the thing that was also on the menu was sushi. And it was the first time that I ever had what people have written about or I've read about, which is uh, Mexican sushi, which is a thing. And what? Yeah. You know, Mexico's had so many immigrants from around the world. I think one of the things we should do a deeper dive in, and I I don't know everything about food. In fact, I know very little, is I want to know a little bit more about how sushi happened in this restaurant and in that region. I literally know nothing, so I'll just shut up about it. But I did order a tuna roll. We ordered some jalapeno poppers. It was crazy. I don't know really that much about what I was eating other than it had great uh, ceviche. We went there and we had some agua chile and I just kept on looking at the other tables. I mean, like we ordered not the right thing. So I have to go back. And I, I was just surprised at how delicious it was and was fun. Honestly, it was probably one of my favorite dining experiences in a long time because, you know, I was sharing food with the people at the bar who were drinking giant micheladas. Anytime you can share food with strangers that you haven't met, that's the kind of restaurant that I really want to eat at. And um, man, families, it was just a blast. And the restaurant, as crazy as it was, just made complete sense. El Capitan, does it sound appealing to you, Isaac? Yes, that sounds like right up my alley. Mexican food and and Japanese food and Chinese food, they're all really up there. It's not really Chinese, but there was a couple dishes I thought were Chinese influenced. Influenced? It sounds like just Californian food is really so what that sounds like. good, man. The sauces. And we had these grilled shrimp and mm. we had snook. Um, man, it was unbelievably good. And the salsas and the sauces to me, I just thought were top notch. And here's the thing. I'm sure there's somebody that's listening or have been there and be like, dude, you're totally wrong. That restaurant's not so good. <laughs> I don't know. I don't read Yelp. I have no idea. We literally went there on a recommendation. I I'm really deciding these days not to look and read about everything. I just wanted to have my own opinion, and I thought it was fucking awesome. And it's a restaurant that if I'm ever in the area again, because it's the first time I've ever been there, I don't go to fucking Coachella. It was the first time I've ever been there. I would love to go back. I recently was in New York last week, and I had a, a meal at Sushi Azabu in Tribeca, I have not been there in a long time. I think the chef there, the head sushi chef, went to go work for the Lobster Club, a major food group. And one of my favorite restaurants in New York City that closed down was on the top floor. So it's on Greenwich Street in Tribeca. And it used to be called Greenwich Grill. And if you spend time in Asia, you've had this Japanese-Italian experience, right, where you can get pastas and really delicious sort of grilled meats and salads but done in a way that's distinctly still Japanese. You can sort of see that in restaurants like Basta Pasta that I don't know how many locations there are, but this was like the best version of Basta Pasta I've ever had. And I do like Basta Pasta. And I just know stories about 
that restaurant was difficult because you had to have an Italian chef and you had to have a Japanese chef. And I was so sad that it closed because of a restaurant that I would frequent a lot because I would go for the chicken and a pasta and a salad. And it was just something that was really good. It wasn't trying to be the best restaurant ever. And it was a great neighborhood spot and it was always dependable because you could always get a reservation or just walk in. And it's now a, a sake bar. And I hadn't been there in a long time. And it's one of those restaurants where you totally forget. It goes out of your rotation. And I think it came out of my rotation because Greenwich Grill closed. And I totally forgot about Sushi Azabu because there's all these new sushi opening up. And New York sushi is better than ever in a lot of ways. And I decided to take Grace out on a date night. We went to Sushi Azabu. And I thought the Shari and the Netta the whole thing was fucking awesome. It was so good. I was really shocked at how good the sushi was. And it just made me realize, man, there are probably so many restaurants in New York City and all over the world that are making great food that a lot of people don't know about. And I just felt that I wanted to give it a shout out because I was that impressed by how good the sushi was. You know, sushi snobs, from Tokyo would say like, no, it's not that great. But like, listen, I've had a lot of great sushi. I thought it was really good. Maybe I just caught it on one special day. I don't think so. It's always been a great restaurant. They've always made great food. And that's another thing. All the hot foods, you know, we had grilled bamboo shoots. We had all this delicately fried fish. It was extraordinary. I, I just thought it was one of the best meals I've had in a long time. So I'm not going to withhold information anymore. I want to share the places that I'm eating that I love because I want to support restaurants and I'm trying to get the Greenwich Grill back open again because I think New York New York City needs that restaurant again because it, it's a so when you go to the space it's a bi-level restaurant so Sushi Azabu's in the basement you walk in and that first floor restaurant used to be Greenwich Grill and now it's a sake bar that I don't know but I'm going to visit it soon I'm sure so check out Sushi Azabu check out the sake bar that I don't know the name of and I want to create some kind of like momentum to maybe convince the owners there to bring back Greenwich Grill, one of my favorite restaurants that never got enough praise. And uh, another restaurant, I was in Koreatown. Isaac, have you ever been to Kastown? Kastown? Yeah, near Soban and uh, Sonandang. It's just, I mean, I've seen the construction there for a while and finally decided to go in and I just got some beers and some fried chicken and I thought the fried chicken was Unbelievably. Oh. Yes. Okay. I didn't know how they made it. I have no idea. It's some kind of beer batter, alcohol batter. I mean, it's named Cast Town, so it might be using the beer cast from it's the possible. Bin, right? It was also like not busy. I was shocked. And I want to go back there. It was really delicious, piping hot. But what I liked about it is they had some of the chicken like bone in and some were cut into smaller bits. Mm. And so you could like pick and choose and it was just a big mound of it. And I, it was, it was crunchy. It was light. It's the kind of restaurant that I would want to go back to very soon. I would say it's a, if you're familiar with the Los Angeles scene, particularly Koreatown, it's sort of in the vein of Obi Bear. Isaac, you're Korean. Can you yeah. tell people what that kind of like Korean beer house <laughs> is like? What is, what is it? What do they serve normally? And what is it like? And why is it so popular? It's popular because the food is, you go to most pubs and the food is kind of secondary to the drinks. But I feel like in a Korean gastropub, it's equal footing. 
if you go to like a place like Beer Garden, also in K-Town, like a lot of people just go there to eat food. And it's a lot of finger food. It's a lot of, in Korean, you call it Anju. Like Tansongsa is also a great place. I don't know how, how I would describe the general cuisine. Because I but, think people would be like, what the fuck's going on here? When they walk into <laughs> yeah. one of these restaurants, it doesn't make any sense. It looks like a sports bar. Yes, it does. Yeah. But they serve like full meals, basically, if you want to. But real Korean stuff, but Korean drink, it's drinking food. Drinking food. Spicy. Spicy, too. I mean, right? which is some, not something that people associate with drinking food. But in Korea, that's what you eat. But there's kinds of anju. And, and some of it is just nuts and peanuts or dried fish. Or one common dish is like just basically uh, tofu and pork belly and, yes. and kimchi. yes. Do you ever get jokbal? You get pig's feet there oh, too? Oh, I love jokbal. Right? Yeah. That's like a real big anju dish. Yeah. If you've so never had jokbal, a- it's pig's feet. It's like all the gelatin. It's the gelatinous substance from the pig's feet. It is absolutely delicious. There's a, again, I, I'm far from being an anju expert, but there are certain genres or categories within anju itself. And I'm not the expert because I usually go there and I just get some kind of jun, which is like a pancake and fried chicken and some beer. But I've never... I would say I'm a rookie novice at explaining or exploring the Korean beer scene. Um, oh my God, I'm blanking out right now. What's the word that's used to call fried chicken and beer? Chimek. Chimek. Yeah. It's not chimek either, you know, but it's got yeah. that sort of vibe. So check it out. I, I just opened up. It was not busy. There were a couple. I just used there. It's a place that I'm going to visit again. I wanted to go to Soban. Uh, we did go to Soban. Hmm. It was very busy again. Soban was very busy because I think the Parasite crew went there. Yeah. But I, I love that sort of triangle, which is I'm so happy that it's getting buzz and people are eating there because I think it has some of the best food in LA. Soban to me is more Korean home cooking. Would mm. you agree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it has amazing gejang and galbijim, but in general, you get the cod, jorim, like the spicy cod stew. I'm so happy that people are going to Soban. You can't buy beer there, but whatever. The food's delicious. But that area is amazing because now that there's cast town that I can get fried chicken, usually I sort of just try to like figure out, do I want duck or do I want Soban? And now the choice is going to be complicated because I got this fried chicken shop right there. Have you been to Olympic Noodle too? Yes, I have. Olympic Noodle is great. That's a classic Koreatown, yep. LA Koreatown staple. But Sunajang is another restaurant that I adore. Can you explain to them what it is? Sunajang is a duck restaurant, right? Correct. And there really is that and, and, and one dang jangi, a soybean stew. You can get a marinated duck or a non-marinated duck and they slice it and it comes to you frozen and they, it's this cast iron griddle and they yeah. plug it and you cook the duck and you eat it on a bed of scallion salad. It's delicious, heavenly. And you'll be surprised at how much fat accumulates they drain some of it out because they plug the hole with some kimchi and they add rice and they add basically all the, the panjan, the stuff that you sort of nibble on all into the pot and you get tremendous fried rice. It's another restaurant that I ruined that Dave Cho, the artist, <laughs> introduced to me. But I just want to give that whole sort of uh, stretch a shout out. You have some really great food and it's not, would you say that's sort of off-strip Koreatown? This is like the edge of Koreatown, right? Shinudarang yeah. um, Orkerang is also a dumpling place. Sisters Dumplings is the English Oh, yeah, name. that place is great. That place is, it's an OG place that like Korean people in Los Angeles know that place. Olympic Noodle, you mentioned, Gangnam is there. Yeah, so this is like the edge of K-Town on Olympic. Well, 
you got a real Koreatown expert that speaks way better <laughs> Korean than I do, but this is a part of Koreatown that I enjoy a lot. I think the food's always tremendous, and I don't know if it gets hit by tourists as much as it should, in my opinion. Um, yeah, this isn't like the sexy part of Koreatown um, where no. there's a bunch of bars or whatever. This is kind of like resident K-Town people where they go. Well, that was a much longer, but I'm happy we're talking about yeah, this. this. You good. know what I mean? Because this is a different way of talking about Korean food. This is the food that I want to eat. And you know what? We can do a deeper dive into this later. Um, the third topic, which is so fucking crazy when you talk about spoons and <laughs> these restaurants, <laughs> um, is fly fishing. It's something I talked a lot about. I've been fly fishing since 1999. After college, I moved to Wyoming with some friends, and I worked at Jackson Hole Resort Lodging, answering phones in the graveyard shifts just so I could learn how to fly fish. Don't ask me fucking why I wanted to learn how to fly fish, but I did, and it's something that I've I've really tried to get better at over all these years, and there's still so much to learn. So fly fishing is something that actually there was a good stretch where I didn't get to do it at all because I was just working so much. But now when I have some time off, I don't know if I'm going to have the time to go fly fishing. So when I do, I really cherish it. And last summer, I got the opportunity to fish out in Idaho on the South Fork with some really good friends. Jimmy Kimmel is not just one of the best nighttime talk show hosts. He's an amazing fly fisherman, and he loves it so much. And we had some other chefs. And anyway, we had a great group of people fly fishing and I didn't expect to be hanging out with Huey Lewis, who was part of this crew. And I was intimidated. I didn't know. Because if you fly fish enough, you hear about the people that do fly fish. I hear that guy that played Henry Winkler is a big fly fisherman. You hear, right, people that you wouldn't expect. And I heard through the grapevine, Jimmy Kimmel is a big fly fisherman. And you can see it on his social media. And the thing that I think probably the first celebrity that I heard that was a big fly fisherman was Huey Lewis. And I, I just never thought in my wildest dreams that I would spend a few days fly fishing with an artist that I grew up listening to. And Huey Lewis is our guest this week. And the whole thing about fly fishing, why I love it is that it's like chess with nature. And I know that sounds so pompous, but it's the best way for me to, to describe it. And it's something that is constantly moving and there's so much to learn. I'm not the flying my own ties, uh, uh, flies kind of guy because my, my dexterity is really bad these days. But um, it's just something that can be all-consuming. And I love it because if I'm not present, I'm going to fuck it up. I'm not going to catch the fish, and whether that's freshwater or saltwater. And I just never thought I would be doing it as much as I've done in my lifetime and get to meet amazing people. And there's something so pure about it. And Huey Lewis is a mad, amazing fly fisherman, both from saltwater and freshwater. And I just didn't know how great he was. This guy's amazing. And he has a, he lives most of his time, I think is in Montana at his ranch. And he rows his own drift boat, really incredibly knowledgeable about fishing. In fact, I don't know what this guy doesn't know about anything. I mean, he knows everything about fly fishing. He knows everything about music and just things in culture in general. And I had one of the best times I've ever had with that trip. And I hope to get to spend more time with Huey Lewis because I got to learn about an individual that I'm going to just be honest. I typecast in my head who he was, what he was going to be like. And I love being wrong. And I couldn't have been more wrong about Huey Lewis. 
because he's just one of the most amazing people in the world. I, in this podcast, I describe him as the real most interesting man in the world. And I, and I genuinely believe that he's a brilliant person, an amazing musician. He's a artist that has sold over 30 million records. One of the biggest artists of all time. Sports, an album that came out in 1983, was an album I remember as a kid that I would listen to all the time. Back to the Future, that soundtrack. Even the song that he did with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in duets, the movie, is fucking awesome. And he just makes beautiful music that makes me happy. And the reason he came on this podcast, and what's crazy is he agreed to do this podcast before I went fishing with him. We recorded this, or agreed to do this months ago. And at the time we recorded this, it wasn't going to be released yet. Unfortunately, Huey, as he'll describe in this podcast, has Meniere's disease and how it affects him. He, he lost his hearing. Uh, incredibly shitty thing. And when I met him, his hearing started to come back and it was a beautiful thing for him to start to listen to music. And, you know, when you see someone love music or love anything, cooking, literature, whatever, but like when you see someone like Huey being able to listen to music and really get into it, by a campfire, it was just the coolest thing. And I just wanted to make sure that we were feeding him food with no salt, which is something you'll hear about a lot because he heard that maybe high salt content might be better for his hearing. The one thing I wanted to add about Huey Lewis and this album is that he's still making music on his terms. There's an independent streak that is really admirable. And it was recently released, so go check out Weather new album by Huey Lewis in the News. I love his story because he's a guy that will tell you, first and foremost, he doesn't have the best voice. He doesn't have this, this, and this, even though I think he's supremely talented. But he found a way to make it work, and he found a way to make a career out of his, like, one of his true passions, which, you know, fly fishing is one of them. And obviously, listening and playing music is the other. He's lived an extraordinary life. And I wish he would write a book or make a doc. I think he is making a documentary that would go into detail about just how fucking crazy Huey Lewis's life has been. Uh, we talk a little bit about his mother, Magda, at the end of this. I can't say enough about him. If you don't know who Huey Lewis is, check him out. I'm sure you've listened to his music. There's a lot of fly fishing talk, but most importantly, there's a lot of talk about how he became Huey Lewis and found his voice, and I found it to be incredibly inspirational because he's ultimately saying the same thing. He's like, you just have to have something to say and work your ass off, and that's how you get lucky. So that was a lot of talking. Here is Huey Lewis. How did you get into harmonica playing? Good question. Really good question. I, um... Yeah, let's see. Well, I got to go. Re- I got to go way back. Uh, I was um, I was born in New York City, raised in California. At the age of five, we moved to the Bay Area, and my mom immediately connected with with the hippies there. My mother was an artist. She was born in Poland, and so she started hanging out with the hippies. And my dad, although a bohemian in his own right, was sort of different. And they they got divorced, and uh, so I I had my mother had custody. Uh, of me. And, uh, so I, I, w- I lived with her and I was going away to prep school. My, my father convinced me to go, go away to 
prep school would be good for me in New Jersey. So going to prep school in New Jersey, but living with my mother. And she rented out one of the rooms in our house to a boarder named Billy Roberts, who wrote Hey Joe. And it was a folk singer. This was, this was kind of 65 before the summer of love and all that. And he was a folk singer and he played harmonicas with the little harmonica brace, you know, you put around your neck. And so he gave me a bunch of old harmonicas. Um, which I started to play. And then, and um, how old are you in high school? 13? I was probably, uh, let me get that right. I was probably 14. So I 14. So now I'm, so I graduated a year young from prep school and I'd been accepted to Cornell where I was going to go to college. And you got a perfect score on your SATs. Or <laughs> I did. I that, was a, that was told at least five times on the official I, trip. And I have no idea why. <laughs> I have no idea. And my level two, I got 800 yeah. on two, and I have no idea why. <laughs> I, I, I kind of had a math aptitude that I cared nothing about. I always wanted to be a poet, you know, kind of a, in a way. So anyway, so now it's, I graduate from, um, from prep school and my father who had convinced me to go to school to begin with, because he was worried that I was going to hang out with my, my mom was going to turn me into a, you know, a, a, a hippie or a vegetable. <laughs> uh, so now he, now I was accepted to Cornell and he said, okay, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you're 16 years old. I was 16. I was a year young. You graduated high school at 16? I sk skipped second grade. I was amazing in sandbox in first grade. So, uh, uh, so I skipped second grade. So I'm 16. And I remember him telling me, you're 16 years old. You got, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, all your decisions are all your own, but there's only one more thing I'm going to make you do. I said, what's that? He says, don't go to college yet. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, no. I said, but dad, I'm going to play baseball and I was going to do this. And he says, no, take a year off and bum around Europe. I said, really? Yep. So I'm going to make you do it. I said, all right. So I, uh, I took all the harmonicas, which I was now playing and I hitchhiked across the country and I, I actually stowed away on a flight. It's kind so this of a, is the story I really wanted to know. This is it's how did you plan to stow away on a flight? And what year is this? Well, this is 1967 or 68. And I hitchhiked across the country and, and I got a ride with this guy who told me, you know, you can, you, there's a couple ways you can get. I'm so he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to get to Europe and bum around. And I worked for two months. I had $350 to my name. And, and so I'm hitchhiking across the country and he says, here's what you do. You go to this luggage place. I can't remember the name of it, Aero Freight or whatever. And then, and, and see if you can get on board that way. If you, and if you can't, um, you can actually go to the terminal and fill out the form yourself. And it kind of sounded kind of complicated. And I didn't really pay much attention to it. I remembered the, the freight part. So I went to the freight place at, at what was then Idlewild Airport. It's now Kennedy Airport. And I, Tried to get on a, a freight deal to, uh, to London and there was no, no going. Suppose the guy told me you could actually sit in the baggage department, but the, the, they told me that that's nonsense. You'd freeze to death and, and it wouldn't work. So now I go back to the main terminal and I just hung out there and I befriended one of the agents when he got off a of TWA. That's how long ago this was TWA agent. And I said, you know, a guy told, I don't have any money and I'm trying to get to Europe. I see, he said, and a guy told me there's a way to, he says, I'll tell you what, if you wait till I get off, I'll show you. I said, why? So I waited till like, I think he got off at midnight 
And he showed me, gave me one of these envelopes that he got from the drawer underneath the thing and a special <laughs> silver pen. And you write LHR and the flight number on the top of it. And the ticket goes inside. It's really just a sleeve, you know, a, a, a pocketbook thing. Right. And then he says, what you do is you write this or LHR London and then go into the gate way before, like an hour before anybody's there. And just hang out, make yourself just read in a corner, which I did. And then they set up the podium and, and he said, you'll already be in there. He says, now when you board the flight, all they look at is the outside. And so you just show them the outside and, and he put the seat number. He put, he showed me which, what seat number, put the middle seat over the wing, over one of the wing. And you write that down and then you get on the airplane and then go and sit in a different middle seat over the wing. In other words, a different lousy seat. So that in case you get found out, you say, oh, well, my seat's really over there. And then you get up and move. He says, and the only way you're going to get found out is if they count, they do a last count. The the way the uh, flight attendant does a last count before she's done. She's got to jibe it with the people who checked in. And they're going to be one more person on the plane than people who checked in. He says, but they won't hold up the whole flight. They'll just think they they made a mistake and they'll send you on your way. I said, well, okay, it sounds okay. So, you know, he said, look, if you want to play it really safe, buy a ticket <laughs> and, and then hide the ticket and try it, do the whole thing. And when you get to the other end, refund the ticket. I said, you can do that. He said, absolutely. He says, cause you didn't use it and you can refund it. Pretend somebody flew you over privately or whatever. I said, okay, that's what I'll do. So to play it safe, I bought a ticket and then I did all of the rest. And they never took my ticket. And you returned and I, it. And I went to London. I returned it. And I got 320 bucks back or $300 back, whatever it was. Again, we're talking about a small story about stowing away on a plane. Uh, and the details are amazing. Like, you could just listen to Huey forever talking <laughs> about stories. Like, come on. That's got to be one of the best top five stories about stowing away anything. Um and then you get into Europe and you just start busking around? Yeah, exactly. Then I, I, I knew a guy from prep school in London uh, who I stayed at his place, his, him and his parents' place for a couple nights. But I went right down to the square and I met some musicians and we started, uh, and I met a guy called Michael Jeffries. And he said, look, I, he, he had hitchhiked from South Africa all the way from Durban, all the way up through Africa and, and uh, 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 the Middle East and all the way up through Europe and in London. He said, yeah, I want to go back to Europe. Let's go. We'll go together. I said, fine. So he, together, we hitchhiked through the continent. And when I took my harmonica, because it kind of fit the image, and that was how we, you know, we would split up in the evening to go hustle money. I would go play harmonica somewhere. He would do what he did, which is not ready for prime time. <laughs> but, but, uh, um, and then we would come back and join it. And now, now I'm in, you know, we, so we hitchhiked all the way through France. Um, we got in a car wreck in France, which was pretty wild on a rent a car. And it was terrible, but nonetheless, we get to North Africa and we get down to North Africa and we get to, uh, Casablanca and, um, and I'm playing in the square at Casablanca and I'm making four dirhams and the youth hostels one dirham and all I can eat is another dirham. And I'm making money and I'm saying to myself, Hey, this is pretty good. I think <laughs> I, I should try this for a living. And that's actually when the, when a kind of a bell went off, I thought, what the hell? This is more fun than, uh, than engineering. Did you have any idea that you were going to be a professional musician? Like when you were growing up, is that what's like possibility? 
Not at all. Not until then. And then I thought, wait a second. I mean, and then the other thing that happened is I was in Morocco for, for probably two months and, uh, you know, too stoned to leave, to be honest, <laughs> you know, every day we were going to leave, but we never did <laughs> kind of thing, you know? And so now I, um, that must have been a cool time to be in Morocco, right? That was really great. I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing. I mean, and the, 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 the square in Marrakesh, we, we lived in Marrakesh. We were in Casablanca for about a week or 10 days and then mainly in Marrakesh. Uh, uh, and, uh, beautiful city. Oh, unbelievable. And the, the, the high Atlas mountains are just gorgeous. We went over to Corsazat and went to Agadir and traveled around just playing harmonica, you know, which was really great. So now I'm coming out of Africa. It's, I've been there for a month maybe two months and I'm hitchhiking in Ceuta in Spain and I'm by myself now. I don't Was I by myself? No, I wasn't. I guess I was with Michael. It's still, we're both coming out and we're hitchhiking. And now often there is, I see this like 1930 Ford, like a model a Ford pulling an Airstream trailer and it stops. And the driver was a guy called Jimmy Vandera, who was a Dutch guy. He was in his, late seventies with a big handlebar mustache. And the car had been used at, for Bogart's Casablanca. And he was, it was his car and he was from Holland and he was going to drive it all the way back to Holland. So he picked us up. Wow. Well, he was, he was a, um, what should we say? He liked his drink, this guy. <laughs> and so we stopped literally at every bar on the way. And we're, we're up the, the West coast of Spain on the way to Portugal. And we stopped at every bar on the way until we get to the border of Portugal. Oh, oh, before we get to the border of Portugal, we, we stopped at all these bars and now he's pretty hammered and he's driving and we're driving and it's dark. And all of a sudden he drives off of the road and into the, uh, off this, the, the road was on a little levee and he drives off the road and now there's, we're in three feet of water and the ca car and everything's, we're, we're like two and a half, the water's up on the floorboards and all. Well, he gets out of the car, takes a fire extinguisher and fire extinguishes the distributor cap and the, and the, the motor opens the motor and just, and squirts the fire extinguisher on everything, which I guess dries it out because the, the, the road, the distributor wasn't unsubmerged. It was above the water and boom, he just sprayed it like crazy, shut the hood, car started up and drove out of that water <laughs> and we wind up on the levee. Now we get to the border. It's about 11 o'clock at night. We can't find my passport because my knapsack has been, is in back of the trailer and the water has floated it out of the knapsack and somewhere in the, in the edges of the trailer. We can't, I've lost my passport. <laughs> so I can't go to Portugal. So they go by themselves. He goes, well, and I, I take my sleeping bag and my knapsack and I know I got to go back to Seville to get another passport. But it's like Thursday night. It's exactly Thursday night. <laughs> and now I got to find a place to sleep. And I'm in this little border town. And in a garage, I see there, I hear this music and I go over to this, this, uh, roll top kind of, uh, you know, metal door garage. And I put my ear up to it and, it, and there's a rock band in there playing sort of, you know, learning. So I knock on the door. They open the door. And it's three guys playing musical instruments. So I, through sign language, I don't speak Spanish. I express to them that I, you know, well, well, I said, let's play. So I taught them 
I think it might have been Twist and Shout. Uh, and we, and we said, we did, it was either Twist and Shout or, 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 uh, I think it was, I, yeah, I think it was, or La Cucaracha, what, you know, same thing. But we, but, uh, then we, um, we jammed all night basically. And I slept right there in their, in their rehearsal studio. And the next morning I hitchhiked to Seville. It took me all day to get there. This is Franco Spain back then. And, and nobody would pick you up much. And I had long hair and so hard to get rides. So it took me all day to get back to Spain, to Seville. I finally get to Seville and I finally find out where the American embassy is. And I go to get my passport and it's, it's in the afternoon and I need 20 bucks for the passport. And I don't have any money at all. Uh, because I, why have I spent my money? Yeah, I've, I've spent it. And now I'm. And they literally shut the door in my face. Like it's five o'clock. It was like four forty-five. They said, "Come back Monday." I said, "Well, what am I going to?" You know. So they shut the door. So I wander into town, hitchhike back into town, slept with a night watchman that night, who was really nice. Let me sleep next to the fire and all this stuff. And and the next morning, and then the next day, I go to the square and I start playing harmonica because that's I needed to make some money. I need twenty bucks for the by Monday for the passport. Now these kids come along. And these college kids, and they see me and they listen and they, oh, they befriend me and they start talking to me. And it turns out, um, they want to help me. And they, they're, and you know, this is 1967 or, or 68. So the, the San Francisco thing is just broken and they're all nut. They're all wild about the hippies. So peace and love, hippie peace. movement. Has that really affected? Cause I've never heard about the vision of it from perspective from Europe. Yeah, they had, it hadn't affected Europe yet, but they know about it. Wow. They, they've been reading about it and seeing it and so, so on. So you're, you're like. And I'm like the first one. I got hair down to my shoulders <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. So they think, oh my gosh, this guy's a San Francisco. So I tell them my dilemma. They say, no problem. We'll throw a concert. <laughs> and so they, we auditioned for guitar players and I met a, an Australian kid, um, whose name escapes me now. But he was from the outback in Australia and he played guitar and he had like one record, which was like a Sonny Terry Brown and McGee record. And he could play, you know, that kind of stuff. And so it was perfect. So we worked out a, a set, if you will, for eight or nine songs of kind of bluesy things. And uh, just me and him, harmonica and guitar. And then they decided they were going to throw us a concert in five days time. They put these posters up everywhere. They called Lost Blues with Huey and Tim or whatever it was. And now comes the day of the concert at the, at the thing. And they, they, yeah, you know, they got, they contracted the hall. They got the plate, the space and everything. They, I mean, these guys really got it together in about five days. And we were rehearsing, trying to get our, you know, our seven, eight songs together. So now comes the day of the concert. I'll never forget the opening act was Los Nuevos Tiempos, the New Times. And they were tremendous. I mean, they were, they were like an eight piece band and they were really good. I went, Oh my gosh. And they're going to, they're, they're opening for us, you know, I'm like, and the place was sold out. So now me and Tim get out and it's just a tiny little stage. They put our stage out in, in the middle of the audience, kind of. And we got out over there and I mean, pin drop silence. I'll never forget that. It was so quiet. So we started and we played, um, uh, you got me running. You got me hiding, you know, that, that thing. And, and, and you could hear just quiet, quiet. We finished the song. Tumultuous applause. It was unbelievable. I'll never forget it. And that's when the bug bit. Wow. Honestly. 
right then I went, wow, this is cool. Is that what your, was that one of your, like your first performance in front of people? Exactly. My first concert ever. And what was so funny is at the end of the thing, I got all these people came up to me and, and other club owners and gave me their cards and stuff and said, look, if you want to play at our place, our place. So I thought, great, we got gigs. Well, let's do a bunch of gigs here. So we, we went to, um, dinner that night. They took all the money that they got. I needed 25 bucks or 20 bucks for the passport. Went to dinner that night with the kids to celebrate with the, with the people who'd thrown the show. And they were all communists. They were, you know, literally communist party kids, great kids, you know. And so we had this, they ordered everything in sight from the most, the, all the food and the booze and the bone. They ordered, and we just had a, this amazing meal for three hours. And the bill came and they gave me 20 bucks and then they paid the big, the rest of the money went to the dinner. And that was it. So I, I had my, you know, it's kind of funny because I'm still broke, you know, now I'm still broke. Now I got a passport, but I'm still broke. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but, um, but yeah, that's what that, so now I think I don't have any money, but I get my pal Tim. I go, let's play some of these other gigs. Great. So I call the guy, some of the cards I have, and I book a gig for like the next Friday night or the next Thursday night, whenever it was. And we go to that gig and it's a club. And there's, a, again, a band that opens for us. And again, they're great. And by now, my harmonicas, I only got like three harmonicas. You know, I got like a C, D, and A, or I think. And they're like going out of tune because I've played them so much. And they're kind of going out of tune. They don't sound very good. And, and Tim, our guitar player, plays a steel string guitar but you can't get steel strings in Spain. They're real tough. And he breaks his string. So he's got one with a nylon string and it keeps, it won't stay in tune with the others. And anyway, long story short, our next gig was a complete disaster. We, we were terrible. People walked out and, uh, you know, but. You had the bug. I had fun. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. You can even add screening questions to your job listing so you can filter candidates and focus on the best ones. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, to try ZipRecruiter for free, my listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's show is also brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn how to barbecue from the great chef, Aaron Franklin. You can learn French classics from Thomas Keller and Gordon Ramsay. You can learn how to make Mexican food from Gabriel Camara. There are so many things you can learn from, and it's not just about food. You can learn about filmmaking, writing, photography, even hostage negotiations. With over 75 different instructors across tons of categories, there's literally something for everyone. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, Apple TV, or Amazon Fire TV. 
Each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, all of which you can explore at your own pace. Lessons are about 10 to 15 minutes in length, so they can fit into your busy schedule. Single classes are $90, and the all-access pass is $180 a year. That's a great value. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every master class. And as a Dave Chang Show listener, you'll get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash Chang. That's masterclass.com slash Chang for a 15% off masterclass. And now back to the show. Were there any other harmonica players like around that time that were famous other than? Sure. Like sure. who, who were the most famous harmonica players? Well, Paul Butterfield was. I thought he was a guitar player though. No, no. Paul Butterfield was a harmonica player. Michael Bloomfield was the guitar oh, player. That's right. That's right. And, uh, and, uh, they were, they were my favorite band. And that's, that, that's how I first, I mean, next to Dylan. Uh oh, that's how it kind of got started. So when I hitchhiked across the country, my mother gave me a Bob Dylan record. She said, so when my back went way back when, when my dad said, don't go to college, bum around Europe. I told my mom, my mom said, that's the best decision your old man ever had. <laughs> and she gave me a, Bob Dylan record. She says, check this record out because the poets really love this guy. And that's kind of what my first introduction to the harmonica. But. Wow. Yeah. Did you think that it was going to like, lead to all this stuff? Did you have any idea? Like, so, uh, you know, one of the things that we do on this podcast, or I just, you know, most of it is a lot of it's culinary related, but a lot of people ask like, Hey, like, how do you know to do what you want to do? Right. I'm like, you don't, you just do whatever you think you want to do. <laughs> I think that's right. I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I credit my old man for 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 making me take that year off. If I had not taken that year off, I probably I would I was accepted to Cornell Engineering School, I, which I went back to after a year off. Could you have played? Did you play baseball there too? I played baseball. Well, I started to play baseball, but I was signed up to play baseball. I actually kind of had a mini scholarship there. But after the year in Europe. I didn't want to play baseball anymore. I didn't want to go to school anymore. I just wanted to play music. So I, I go back to Cornell and I'd had everything my freshman year because I've been to a Lawrenceville's was a great prep school and I'd had it all. So I could, I could literally do everything without going to class. And I just played in bands and, uh, until it caught up with me. Uh, and then I, then I dropped out. Was there any concern about dropping out where you're like, oh, man, I got to graduate or? Well, you know, I, I wrote my dad or I called him. I can't remember in those days. I probably called him on the pay phone. But um, and I told him I was going to I wanted to be a musician. I was going to drop out and play music. But he, he was would, a doctor, right? He was a doctor, and he said, well, you, you either know what you want to do or you don't. He says, go for it. You know, he said that was my deal. My deal was I wanted you to take a year and bum around Europe. You did that. Go ahead, do whatever you want. So, what are you like? Twenty years old now? Nineteen? Twenty? I was, I was not even. I would say sixteen. So then I was, I was eighteen. Eighteen. <laughs> this is amazing. Eighteen. Oh my god! But eighteen then was like thirty now. <laughs> it, it really, really was. I mean, you know, I, I left home at twelve. I mean, I, I went to, I, I graduated from eighth grade, right, at in nineteen sixty three. In June, in July of 63, one month later, I turned 13. And in August, I went away to prep school. 
Uh, I was living in California, New Jersey. Four years, coat and tie, all boys, think dead poet society. And not one of my parents has ever been there. <laughs> so I, I left home at 12, 13. So you're all of 18. Most people are going into college around that time or, you know, starting their life as an adult. And what are you like? I'm playing music. I'm playing music. I moved to California, joined a, a bluegrass band called Hereford Heartstringers, four of which were members of a band called Clover. They recruited me to join Clover. Uh, we played that, that band played in clubs for, I mean, five years, six years. And are you singing now? I was still not. What was I saying? No, not really. Yeah, a little bit, one or two songs, but may, not really. We were, Clover was trying to, you know, we were trying to get a record contract and it happened. And my voice was not what was going in those days in the seventies. And the, it was, can we, can we elaborate? Cause I think this is very important because when I, when I read that, like you weren't singing immediately, I was like, Huey's got an amazing voice. How come? It, well, in the seventies, it was all, whoa, whoa, you know, it was all high tenors and, and kind of long hair kind of stuff. And my, my stuff was an R and B guy. And, and it was just, so I just played harmonica in the band. Uh, you know, I was not, I, I was just a, a part player. And we had Alex called, did all our songs, did all our, most of our singing. And John McPhee played guitar. And we, we got signed to go to England. Um, we got signed by Jake Revere and Dave Robinson and phonogram records. They, and Dave, Jake and Dave managed Elvis Costello, Nick Lowe, Graham Parker and the rumor, you know, they create, they started stiff records. And all that was their baby. And, and they, but the, before they did any of that, they signed Clover because London was in, uh, England was in a bit of a lull at the moment. And they figured, and you know, England's a kind of a neat place because it's very small. So you can take the country by storm with an idea. I mean, you can just, and every once in a while there's a fad that happens and it just takes over. And they thought that pub rock was going to be the next thing. And Clover was, vintage pub rock and they thought so they signed clover but the day we they signed clover and before we the day we kind of land in london getting ready to make our record and start our campaign the sex pistols played like their first gig that was the week that the debt that all that stuff started to happen and we were a country rock band in the middle of a punk explosion you know so wrong place wrong time for two years but we made a couple records with mutt langer the great record producer and got great relationship there. I played in a lot of studios. I did a lot of studio work and I really kind of learned how to make records and how to record. And so London, England, and, and I saw the punks and the punks were thumbing their nose of the music business and saying, Hey, we're going to sing our own songs, our own way. And we don't care. And I thought, wow, what a, how liberating that was, you know? So I vowed that if my band, cause we'd, we'd been struggling for years to try to make ourselves presentable to the record labels and sound like what they thought. And, you know, Boston was a big band. So we're trying to sound like Boston kind of like, which is, which I didn't even like, you know, I didn't even like that kind of stuff, but, but I was a team player. But when I saw the punks, I went, wow, that's a relief. So I said, if this band ever breaks up, I'm going to go home. I'm going to surround myself with my favorite musicians and we're going to play. It's going to be, it's going to be horns and R and B based. 
and we'll just play our local club and I don't care. And we're going to quit trying to make it and, and just play at our local club like these punks do. And that's what I did. And, and it, that's kind of, it was like the kind of Zen thing. As soon as we didn't care anymore, it started to happen. You know, That's amazing. And I don't know if I would ever have made that correlation of your time and the formative years in England having such an instrumental impact on your life, but more specifically, you know, seeing the, the beginning of the Sex Pistols and the punk movement actually was a catalyst for your career. Unbelievable. I, I, I saw the Clashes first gig at the Roundhouse in, in London, and it was so jammed. It was the Roundhouse, it was a uh, circular, you could sit. What, what do they call that? It was, it was 360 degree seating. Right, right. And we were kind of almost in back of Strummer, the lead singer. And he, and so the lights were shining on him and I could see it in a certain way. And he was leaning out over the crowd, spitting on them, on the, on the, on the audience, just gobbing on them, as they say, spitting on the audience. And they were spitting, spitting on him back. And he was, dripping in saliva <laughs> leaning into the into the microphone and the spotlight and you could see the the in the spotlight the the saliva just pouring off, off him you know and i thought this is the strangest thing i've ever seen <laughs> but it was, it was quite a shock for us california boys um <clears throat> I, I sort of live by this line by this uh singer who who passed away recently, David Berman, he said, there's a line in one of his songs called Random Rules. Uh, no, We Are Real. He says, um, all my favorite singers couldn't sing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's been instrumental in my life when I think about cooking. You know, okay, I can't cook. Like, there's so many restaurants and chefs that are the equivalent of Journey or Boston. No, I, I, I see that in your cuisine, actually. I see that because you're not afraid to to bust down norms to to do other norms and that and that that that's that's akin to writing your own song and when you write your own song it's your song no one's going to sing that song but no one's going to make that dish better than you 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 created it you created it so it's it's your now other people will copy it and so on and maybe you know be, somebody could be as good but never going to be better because it's your dish and my my problem is i always want to be the best technical singer but i'm never going to be yeah that's me too yeah. <laughs> does that does that insecurity or like does that fuck with your head it used to but now i'm older and i realize that it's just you know just not getting not there i mean you know it's, i mean you you listen to stevie wonder saying man I mean, that's a gift. That's God given <laughs> gift like that. You know, if I could sing like that, I would believe me. But, um, so I got to write my own songs or write our own songs so we can, you know, you got to have worth in this world. I'm not going to sing Stevie wonder songs. That's not going to work. You got He's already done that. <laughs> you have to sing something that's meaningful to you. Right? Yeah. So you can't fake it. Yeah. I mean, you know, really in, in, in my business and it's probably the same with you too. I'm in, you know, they say, what lives as you write a song? What about, what about, well, the, the most important thing is the truth. In other words, when the guy says, and I've said this plenty of times before, but it's really true. When the guy says, I'm going to Kansas city, we got some crazy little women there and I want to get, and I'm going to get me one. We have to believe he's going to Kansas city. He knows about the crazy little women and he wants to get him one. And it, and it, and it, so it's a commitment to that. And then, then it, it lives. It's true. 
It, it can be about anything. It can be earth-shaking or not so earth or whatever, but it, it has to be true. You know, I, and if you're someone that's listening, we have a lot of different listeners. And I never thought I'd be in a position where I even say we have a lot of different listeners. That's just weird. But uh, we get a lot of comments about like, hey, like, how do I find what I want to do? And, and I think just listening to you, right? Just right. find what you want to do by well, doing it. You know, there's, there's, that's really, really important too. And, and everybody says, and I was always told, my father always told me, he says, find what you love to do. Cause if you love to find, if you, if you find something that you love to do, you'll do it a lot cause you love it. And if you do it a lot, you'll be very good at it. And if you're good at it, you'll be successful, period. But the, the problem, and you just put your finger on it. How do you find what it is that you love to do? Well, sometimes that's not obviously, that's not really clear. Well, I, I think find something that you're good at and then not only find something you're good at, but look, like you said, at people who you respect and admire and think, Ooh, I could maybe do that. Or I like what he does. Maybe I'll do that and find an example for yourself to follow and, and try that maybe. Yeah. Had I known about your life and the intricacies of it and the rich details of it, it would have more like, it, it aligned with all the things that did inspire me. You know what I mean? It, yeah, like yeah. Your life falls in line with all the things that I love, right? That helped me get to where I am today. A lot of it was luck, but a lot of it was being inspired by people that took chances. And, you know, if I, if, if you're a listener or you're, you're not, you know, aware or if you haven't listened to Huey, like this is a perfect opportunity to learn about you and to be like, wait, I never thought that a musician could you know, have something parallel to my life and give me sort of a North star to right, follow, right. but it certainly does. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, my, uh, <laughs> my, uh, our old managers, uh, Jake Riviera and Dave Rums, Jake used to say his strategy of management always was infiltrate and then double cross. Explain. <laughs> Meaning the record label wants you to do this. They want you to sound like this. They want, so do everything you can till they, till they say, great. We got, they sign you and then just do whatever you want. Then, right. then pay no attention to them at all. That's basically and my philosophy. That's too. mine too. <laughs> Ask for forgiveness do, later. <laughs> you do whatever you can to get the gig. Yeah, yeah. And when you get the gig, you do what you want. That's exactly what Infiltrate and double cross. <laughs> Infiltrate and double cross. <laughs> I like that. But like going back, I mean, to just going back to London, right? Like, and a lot of it is like you just create these opportunities. So you're inspired by the punk movement. You start your own band. You're playing local clubs in California. And then you're like, this is your, like, this is where you're perfecting your craft. Exactly. We get a, we get a manager, finally a manager says, yeah, I want part of this. I want, then we, uh, and then we, we started showcasing for record companies and it wasn't long. And finally, uh, Chrysalis Records. It's funny because we actually, we do, we play these showcases, you know, we play a little showcase and invite record companies. And then, and the one where we actually got, got signed to our record contract was at the old Waldorf in San Francisco. And we were horrible. And it was, there was a guy from, from, there was a, a guy from Atlantic Records and, 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 um, um, uh, Terry Ellis from Chrysalis and the two of them. And I remember, on the stage, I'm looking out and I see them. I can see both of them because, you know, they're older guys. and they, We were kids at this point. And, uh, and so I had decided that we'd written a brand new song and, and it had all these big vocals in it. 
that we hadn't really mastered yet. I thought, it's okay. It's going to be good. We're going to do this brand new song. And so we did this brand new song and we just murdered it. And in the middle of murdering this new song, I see Jerry Greenberg from Atlantic Records get up and leave. Oh, man. <laughs> and I thought, oh, damn, that's not good. So then we finished out the set and it wasn't very good. And we go back into the, into the dressing room. We're sitting there with her hanging our heads. And Terry Ellis from Chrysalis comes back and says, hi, lads. He says, is, uh, oh, hi. We say, he says, could you hear yourselves? He says. <laughs> Five guys went, nope, shook their heads, nope. He says, yeah, I didn't think so. He says, Huey, fancy a drink? I said, sure, you know. So we went around the corner, had a drink. He says, right, what do you want? Let's talk business. And he signed us on that night, which I give him total credit for because we were terrible. And the so, first album comes out when? First album came out in 1980, 1980, January of 1980. And so we really are an 80s band. Our first album came out in January of 80. How would you describe the sound? I love the first album. You're the one. Yeah. You're the one. I love it. Because it's. <laughs> they told us somebody like that. Right? <laughs> and I wasn't sure who that was. Um, but But also like. In that process before the first album, you weren't Huey Lewis in the news, right? Right. Well, you, you had a variety of names until you got to that point. Right. That's true, actually. Yeah. We, well, we, we were called a band. We called ourselves The Fools, and then we called ourselves American Express. And I thought that was the great name, American Express, because I thought it was what we sounded like. We're very, very, we had, you know, horns and that kind of thing. And then our manager, he said, you got to be Huey Lewis in American Express. We didn't care. He says, it'll be better. You do the interviews. But okay. So then we were Huey Lewis and American Express. And that's how we got signed. And on the eve of the release of our first album, um, our record label suddenly was afraid that we'd be sued by American Express. So they gave us 24 hours to come up with a new name, which is kind of ironic because today probably could have made a deal with American yeah, Express. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... Um, so we came up with the news this is all we could think of. And then uh, what was the album that went like multi-platinum for you guys? Uh, sports. sports. Our first record sold 25,000 copies. Our second album, Picture This. With you had, on the cover. Uh, with me on the cover. Had, um, uh, we had our first hit single with Do Believe in Love on that one. But the second single was Hope You Love Me Like You Say You Do, which is a real R&B tune written by my pal Mike Duke, and that was just too too far of a bridge for people, and so it didn't happen. And the third single was Working for a Living, and it didn't happen because the second single hadn't happened. I'm convinced the second single had been Working for a Living. We might have done better. But anyway, that was that, was that album, and it sold 250,000 copies. So are you, are, you wor- are you feeling pressure from the, the studio? I mean, the Absolutely, and no question. I mean, imagine that. We got to make three albums. Today, you would never get that chance. I mean, we would, you, today, if your first record doesn't hit, you're done. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, oh, of course, it's a completely different ballgame. There was no internet. There was no, you know, jam bands. There was no, you know, it was just top 40 radio was everything. One, and it was a completely radio deal. If you didn't have a hit single, you weren't in the business. So we produced sports ourselves. We aimed every song at radio. And all stylistically different. One was kind of a rock song. One was kind of, because we knew if we did not have a hit single, this would be the end of our recording career. And so we knew we needed a hit. 
We didn't know we were going to get six of them. We just thought we, we needed one and we didn't know if it was going to be here, there or the other. Thing. And so now when I listen back to that record, I realize it is a record of its day. It's a collection of singles. It's, it's a radio record made for the radio times. It's interesting. There's a lot of songs on there that I grew up with. And uh, also with Back to the Future, that was sort of like right after, right? Right, exactly after, right. Yeah. Which was the biggest movie of the 80s, I think, probably, maybe. Yeah, I mean. Maybe it, next to E.T. And it's actually still growing. Every five years we have a reunion, and it's just silly. I mean, that that film, it just, it's become like a, you know. That song in up. the movie, that was like probably the first real soundtrack, right? It's got to be one of the well, first. Well, no. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was before. I mean, what's interesting to note is that that Power Love was from Back to the Future 1. And that they issued a soundtrack album. And it all it had was Power of Love. Um, I think it had, might have had Back, did it have Back in Time? I think it might have had Back in Time on there too. And like a lot of source music. It was kind of a crappy record. Sold, didn't even go gold. Didn't even go platinum. The very next soundtrack record was Dirty Dancing. Wow. Sold 14 million copies. And then Flashdance did 14 million copies. It was just a crappy record. It came out on MCA and it was just a crappy record because nobody knew that these, nobody had done soundtrack records before. And it was, in retrospect, we could have put a soundtrack record that should have sold several. I mean, our record sports sold 10 million copies. But but Power of Love sold five hundred thousand. Wow. Um, I, I could talk forever, uh, and we haven't even talked about some of the things I wanted to get into yet, because again, I just love finding similarities that inspire me. And you went on like crazy tours, and you continue to produce albums. And you have the new one coming out after 18 years. What caused 18 years hiatus? Yeah, good. Very good question. <laughs> well, uh, you know, from the recording, first of all, we've never been prolific. I mean, uh, uh, really. I mean, it's, and when you write, you know, it's all about the songs. You got to have the songs. And, and I haven't figured out a way to conjure them up. You have to just kind of wait for them to come to you. And, um, um, it, we, what we were doing was very slowly compiling a record, thinking, which we, we were playing 75 to 80 shows a year. And, and the band was tighter than ever. We were better than we've ever, ever been. So 18 years playing 80 shows a year. Yeah. 80 shows. And we were better than ever. And we were recording songs for that whole period. And in fact, this record are those songs that we've been recording. But my theory was we could wait, take as long as we want, as long as we're good when we come back. And we kept improving and we were, we were top notch. And so that was the plan. We were in no hurry. We have lives. We fish and we do other things and we were doing 75 shows. So we would just sneak into the studio now and again when we had a good idea. And so we had seven of those. And then this hearing thing hit, you know. And uh, I, I saw the trailer for the doc documentary. Um, 
Right. And uh, that's why I was also concerned about your salt because I was I was told, hey, Huey can't eat too much salt. So I was always going back to the kitchen uh, in and, Idaho. And you totally looked after me. <laughs> it was so good. It was so good. Um, but can you explain, and I don't know if I pronounce this right, Men- Meniere's? Meniere's disease. It's a syndrome based on symptoms. So what that means, they really don't know what it is. If you have vertigo, hearing loss, your fullness in your ears, and tinnitus, it's a, it's a debris box they throw you into that's called Meniere's disease. But they don't know what it is. And mine fluctuates wildly, episodically. I'll have a week or 10 days of sort of, you know, I, one to 10, I say six. Is pretty good for me. And then I'll have a week where it's just one or two. I can't, I'm like almost deaf. And that's why there were seven songs because I can't hear music enough right now. I can hear you speech wise. I have hearing aids and all that. And so I can hear speech, but I can't hear um, music. Music is a hundred times harder to listen to because it occurs in all frequencies. Even one note has harmonics and overtones and undertones. And so there's a resonance that happens for me. Uh, they call it resonance. I call it distortion. A, a bass part, which would go boom, 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 goes. <laughs> so I can't find pitch. And it's horrible. And when my hearing's good, I can almost maybe find it. But I can't book a gig because I got to book a gig like two weeks in, or a month right. in advance. And I never know what I'm going to be like a month in advance, you know? So it's, it's a tough deal. And uh, again, I could see in he, like the, the joy on your face because that week we went fishing, your hearing was great. It was good. I had a good week. I did have a good week. Like you were in it. It's so good when that happens. I just thank my lucky stars, man. That was the best right now, the right now I'm not bad. I, I'm not, I'm probably a four or five right now. Pretty good. But, but to me, that was one of the best, I mean, best parts of the trip was to see like just unbridled joy on your face. Like we're listening to music and you were like, like this guy's, this is his life music. And you forget that sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough. I mean, I haven't, I have literally almost not listened to music for a year and nine months. I haven't watched television other than sports with a sound off. I haven't, you know, all that stuff is just, uh, it's just too tough. And do the doctors, um, I think even that trailer did a good job of, of capturing, um, the unknown of what you're going through. Right. Oh, and, and there are no formulas. This stuff can get better, you know, oh, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And they really don't know. I mean, and that's why you're open to all the, I mean, I've tried, you know, I've been to, uh, House Ear Institute, I've been to Stanford Institute, been to Mayo Clinic, I've been to uh, 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 UCSF, talked on the phone with Dr. Stephen Rausch at Mass General, I is the real guy. I've had acupuncture, a, a, a series of acupuncture, uh, chiropractic, cranial massage, low salt organic diet, tried essential oils. I've had, uh, you know, none of this stuff. Been to all kinds of uh, living Ayurveda, the uh, been to the Beehive and Natural Hearing, Gwyneth Paltrow's place over here, no, and nothing works for me. It's just, um, and even the low salt thing, I think it's, I can't, I've, I've tried to figure out triggers when my hearing's bad or good and what's something, but 
There's just no rhyme and reason to it. Oh, you mentioned Gwyneth Paltrow. That's one of my my favorite movies is uh, duets. Cool. And that song, that's a great song you guys recorded. I know. And she can sing, man. Gwyneth can just flat sing. And she was really fun to work with. I mean, because she's got skills, right? I, How, mean, I still can't believe that's her voice. She can just flat sing. Her mother, Blythe Danner, told me that I think her uncle, Blythe's brother, is an opera singer. And they, they sang all the time in music. She, she's, I mean, she's not just got a good voice. She's a real musical singer, sings harmonies and all that stuff. She, she's, she's good. Cruising. Good song. Yeah, it was fun to do it. It was really fun. And, and, and doing the film was fun because she's so good. You know, she's got such skills and it's, uh, it was really, really fun. Um, but, but on, on this, on this, on this record, there's seven songs. Uh, I'm sure the, the label was like, we need more, but you're like, can't, can't happen. <laughs> well, yeah, they wanted to add some old stuff or some, but I said, you know, it just diminishes it. These, by the way, there are only seven songs, but I really believe, and I'm saying this with a straight face, four of them are among our best work. I mean, I really, I'm very, we're very, very proud of them. So the, the idea was, let's just really, if I can't sing, you know, let's release them because the fans, let's share them at least, you know, before we die. <laughs> and, and I wanted to ask, like, when you, when you made these songs, in terms of the timing of it all, were some of them done? Ten years ago, and then you just recorded it now because, like, it just—it seems like it's timeless. That's what's—that's what's pretty cool about the whole thing. Well, and that's—that's that's very. It's wonderful you say that because that was always my deal. Uh, well, you know, we started in '78 before MTV, and so I—the idea for me was to write songs that are timeless. But now. uh you know, that MTV starts along and like, for example, um, and, and they write for specific people and so on. I mean, you know, just look, I have no tattoos or, or piercings. Me neither. <laughs> but had I been born, you know, uh, had, had we not happened in 78 and, it, and, and if we'd come up in 85, I'd probably be tattooed head to foot if I thought it would help me get a hit record. You know what <laughs> I mean? It just wasn't part of the deal. And so that's, uh, but you've never lost. You sort of like musical moral compass. You know what I mean? I, I suppose not. I mean, I've always, we've always done, you know, infiltrating double cross. We all, yeah. we've always <laughs> done our own thing. So, I mean, I, I try, I'm not, I, I couldn't be trendy if I wanted to, you know? But that's trendy. <laughs> that's like the best kind of trendy. And it sounds, your, your voice sounds as good as ever. And, um, yeah, I wish there were more, some more songs and, and then hopefully, Hopefully the, the 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 doctors can figure out how to 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 remedy this thing because be at good. the very least I just want to go fishing with you and listen to music together. You know that would be the best. I love that. I love that. Um, how did you get into fly fishing? Did you grow up doing it? Yeah, my dad. My dad was a fish. My dad was a bass fisherman. Was a uh, my dad was a top water bass fisherman all his life. But when he moved to California, he got into fly fishing, and so he used to make me fish or make me go fly cast. And I, frankly, I never wanted to go. I always wanted to play baseball and sports and nobody wanted to fish, but that was it. Yeah, I had to do it. And then, then when my parents got divorced, it was a way to meet, visit something my dad always wanted to do. So it was a way to do it with my dad. And so, and so then I didn't, didn't, when I finally went away to prep school, I never fished again till I was at college and there was in, 
Ithaca, New York, and there was this lake with trout in it. And somebody said, well, we're going to go fish up there, fly fish up there. I said, whoa, well, I'll go with you. And went up and I fished again and, and remembered how great it was. And I started, you know, re-involved, got re-involved. Um, Hugh is probably the only person, if you're in a, in a float boat, that will actually tell the guy to fish and he'll row the boat. <laughs> <laughs> well, row, rowing the boat's fun. Uh, uh, guiding is really fun. And uh, there's always it, two guides in the boat when you was fishing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I like, I like rowing. I, I have my own little raft and you'll see when you come to Squala, you'll For see sure. we got, we got, uh, we, we, we have to row rafts. We can't do drift boats because it's rocky, but I have my own little NRS raft. So, I like guiding. It's fun. What do you think it is about fly fishing that prevents people from wanting to understand it? Like, cause they think that it's gotta be easy right? or that I don't want to say easy, but it's hard to explain the difference between fly fishing and fishing with a, a lure and a spinning rod. Yeah. First of all, fly fishing is a challenge. It's, it's difficult and it's a process, but it's a wonderful pursuit in that you can improve till you die. I mean, you can get better, uh, you get better every day and, and there's, and it's endlessly challenging. Um, a lot of people, it's kind of a romantic thing, fly fishing. So a lot of people just want to check it off their list. You know, they want to say, Oh, I've been fly fishing. And, and then that's when the guides put a, a, a nymph rod with indicator set up <laughs> a bobber and two San Juan worms. Yeah. But, 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 uh, but some people, and you know, that's the thing with our mutual friend, Jimmy Kimmel. It was a very interesting thing because he expressed a desire to fish one time. I said, well, come on up and fish. And I mean, he's a fisherman. He loves it. He's a fisherman. I mean, and he's not faking. He loves it. And that's great. And, you know, there's a lot of people who fit fly fish, but but he's a real fisherman. Like really, really in it. Yeah. And I just want more of my friends to get into fly fishing. And it's so hard because everyone's like, uh, just seems like it's boring or it's not something I want to do. And I want, I think the best thing for fly fishing is to talk about it more and to democratize it because it can be seen as a very clubby type of thing. But right. I mean, you're communing with nature. It's like you're playing chess with nature. That's how I, I look at it. Right. It's very good. Very and good. I want more people to do it. And you're standing in the middle of a river casting. It's almost like you're conducting nature. Exactly. And you're at waist high in a river and there's bald eagles flying over and there's lynx on the bank and there's moose and bear and, and what, what's all not of those things were seen in uh <laughs> what's not to like yeah and i mean I, I, again like if i had more of better temperament i'd probably be a practicing buddhist but i think it's the closest to zen i'll ever get right because uh, if you're thinking about anything else particularly saltwater fly fishing no you're, question you're screwed no and, and not only that it will teach you patience you have to be patient. If you're not, you know, it, it, you just get in a, in a world of trouble. Anyway, um, I don't know what else to add. Um, I hope uh, your your hearing comes back. Uh, I look forward to fishing with you as many times as possible. And uh, I want to hear all about your Cuba trip. You will. You absolutely will. Thanks a lot. Um, that's it. All right. Hold on. Tell the LSD story. She took it's LSD. Both ones. Huh? Uh, introducing it to Brazil, and then when you found all the LSD in the book. 
Can you tell those stories or there's no good? No good. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, Brazil story. Huh? Can you tell the Brazil story? The Brazil story. Which one? When I mean, she got arrested. When she got busted. And then I, you were watching the news and you're like, that's my mom. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my mother was born in Poland and escaped during the war in 1944, I believe. Um, I'm sorry. She left in 39. She was 15 years old. She left in 39 and uh, wound her way through Europe. Long story. They sent the kids out, but the parents stayed. And she didn't never reunited with her parents still for another five years, but lived in Brazil for, for had relatives in Brazil for, for those years. And now she finally found her way to America. And by the way, when you tell that story, it is like incredibly heartbreaking story. So that's yeah. why you got to tell these stories about your mom in general, I think, because yeah. they're just amazing. Well, it, it's really, you know, the my mother's story is a cross between Sophie's Choice and House of Sand and Fog, those two movies, because her parents finally got out of Poland and they were very wealthy and aristocratic in Poland. But now they relocated to to Lawrence, Massachusetts, which was he was a dye chemist and a chemical guy my grandfather, and they relocated there because that's where the textile industry was. And he became a dye, a dye chemist there. And then, uh, but they were discriminated against. They couldn't speak English great. And he couldn't make any money. He was used to a much better life. So, so my grandparents committed suicide together, uh, which, uh, which was kind of a tragedy for my mom. And she snapped and became, instead of so pro-America, she became this sort of hippie, really, the anti-American thing. My, my uncle explained this to me, how, you know, America was, as she was escaping Poland, the sound of jazz was the sound of freedom for them because everywhere there was jazz, there were American GIs and they were safe. And so, and it was a happy music. And so she just loved jazz. So when she got to New York, she married my dad, who was playing jazz drums and they were, everything was peachy keen. She just loved America. If he was in America, commercial artist working in New York, marries my dad, and then her parents committed suicide. Well, she turned off to the whole sort of American dream at that point. And my dad, they moved to California where she immediately got with the hippies and Timothy Leary and Allen Ginsberg started taking LSD. And at this particular point, she wanted to go visit Brazil. So she took, I don't know, you know, several, many hits of LSD. I don't know how many, hundreds probably, and down to uh, uh, to Brazil. And then long story short, but I come home from a gig at um, at about one o'clock in the morning and we're, we turn the TV on and it's my, my, uh, my, I was living with Alex Collar, our lead singer, and the both of us are watching TV and Van Amberg on Channel 7 says, I'll never forget it. He goes, a Marin County woman tonight arrested for possession of narcotics in Brazil. That and more after this. And they go to an ad. And I said to Alex, I said, oh, damn it. That's my mom. <laughs> and sure enough, <laughs> two minutes later, they come back. So she was in jail down there for about four or five weeks, finally got out. And uh, there's only so many things we can talk about on the podcast. But needless to say, uh, there are so many uh, stories that were told when we went fishing and all of which are, you know, full range of life with your mom. And I just, I just thought, man, what an amazing person. Yeah. She was, she was a force of nature. My mom just 
great, just wild. She was just lived like she was a complete artist and lived like she was five years old. My dad, when they split up, my dad told me, he says, you know, you got to look after your mom because she's like a five-year-old. She'll walk off a cliff if you don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, you, if, if you guys listen to this, you should push for for Huey to, to, to release a book about his mom because I think it's yeah. the most extraordinary stories I've ever heard. And I'm yeah. not just saying that. You're sweet. So, all right, we'll get you guys out of here. Thanks for listening, guys. That was my conversation with Huey Lewis, the true most interesting man in the world. Uh, we are not going to do an Ask Dave at MajordomaMedia.com this week because we will not be answering them at the end of the podcast anymore because I think we're going to try to just do every month or so an Ask Dave at MajordomaMedia.com mailbag podcast. So we're going to you know, we're constantly tweaking and fucking things around and that's what we're going to do. And if you've been listening to this podcast a while, we're, we're always tweaking and, you know, we'll see what happens. But uh, always appreciate your support. Give us five stars, however you rate this podcast. Thank you, guys. <laughs>